Hi, I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Everybody's got it wrong. All the historians, all the journalists, everybody, thousands of people, all the researchers, they've all been fooled somehow. We know the truth. Aliens built the pyramids, the government is controlling our mind with chemicals, the earth is flat or hollow with all sorts of mythical creatures lurking within it. Conspiracy theories are nothing new, and many are now more mainstream than ever. Remember earlier this year when people were tearing down 5G phone masks that they thought were transmitting COVID-19? The virus has been particularly volatile fuel for conspiracy theorists, some who believe it's all a ploy, a government attempt to control us, and some who believe that the new vaccine is really just a microchip designed to track our every move. Some conspiracy theories never die. They can even outlive the people they're meant to be about. Our guest today is Professor Sir Richard J. Evans, Director of Cambridge University's Conspiracy and Democracy Project and author of, among many other things, The Hitler Conspiracies. Chapter 1. Between Fact and Fiction. As writers, for many of us, writing is an escape. We conjure stories and people to briefly leave behind the material world, and it can be tremendously cathartic. That is, if you leave aside the obvious stresses of writer's block and deadlines. For readers, the same is true. They dive headlong into the world you've created so that they can, just for a moment, experience a different reality. But what happens when you can no longer distinguish between fact and fiction? That's seemingly what's happening in the minds of conspiracy theorists. And I don't just mean the hobbyists who find it interesting to look into bold and brazen claims. I'm talking about those people who dedicate their lives to conspiracy. Why are these stories invented and where do they come from? Some believe that conspiracy theories are a way of allowing people to make sense of a world they don't understand. But as Professor Evans says, this goes far beyond simply telling stories. Obviously, as you're quite right in saying we tell stories, but... Uh, then you have to go on and and ask, what kind of stories are we telling? And if we're telling stories that claim to be true, then we need to research them thoroughly to find out what basis there is for the story, which bits are correct, which bits are not correct. And we need a sense of objectivity for that, because if you're going to claim they're true, then that gives them a different kind of power, if you like than if you say this is all fiction or this is partly fiction. I mean, there's, a t- there's a TV series at the moment, it's a really good one with Ethan Hawke called The Good Lord Bird, which is a Western, and it starts off by saying that uh, all of this is true, some of it happened. So they're kind of hedging their bets there. Uh, and that's, uh, we have so much historical reenactment, as it were, on, on uh, TV programmes that claim to be true, but in fact are fictionalized. Uh, they're partly true, partly not true. And that happens with another TV series, The Crown, which has got into a lot of hot water because it portrays the life of the queen and her family in a very, kind of a lot of verisimilitude, a lot of uh, faithfulness to appearances. They picked actors who look and sound as, just as the queen or Princess Anne or Princess Diana, but it is quite heavily fictionalized. So I think that's the first thing we need to do is to distinguish between fiction and fact. Yeah, The Crown's a great example because the closer we get to present day, the more we think we understand the events 
um, that they are portraying. Th there's an argument to suggest that history is a form of what may or may not have happened by people who may or may not have been there at the time. And, and it's it's very possible that you and I could be present at the same event and have different interpretations of it. But I found it extraordinary that the culture secretary would come out and almost ask for some form of disclaimer to be put on that program to make people realize that the events portrayed may or may not have happened. It's, it's an amazing thing to, to think that that's the world that we now live in. Yes, uh, I mean, first of all, history is about events, most of it about events where you weren't present when the historian is using another way than uh, having been an eyewitness of getting at the truth particularly if it's a hundred or a thousand or two thousand years ago, you have to be able to locate the evidence and judge it effectively. And you do find, of course, that people who are present at an event, eyewitnesses, often have different accounts of it. But you can sort these out. You can sort out uh, the bias that's involved, why they look at it one way, look at it another, and you can come to a reasonable judgment of it. And their hard evidence is really important. Uh, I mean, I've been looking into conspiracy theories about the death of Hitler, for example, on the 30th of April, 1945, and there's overwhelming evidence from eyewitnesses, participants, and so on, that he committed suicide with his wife, formerly Eva Brown, in the bunker underneath the Reich Chancellor in, in Berlin. And there's an absence of evidence as you go on from the, uh, the argument from silence, as it were, that although his wife was a professional photographer. There's no photographic evidence whatsoever of his having survived after 1945. So you can go through these kind of arguments and historians have rules about how you, how you do this. It's the claim, it's the truth claim, which is the key thing. Why does, I mean, there are, if I think about 2020, you know, there are a million and one <clears throat> different conspiracy theories about the virus, the vaccine, um, about, you know, how it is transmitted, whether it exists at all. Those things are very present uh, and, and of the moment. Um, the Hitler Conspiracies book that you have written is dealing with something that is considerably further removed than the present day. As I understand it, there was more, there's been more written about Hitler conspiracy theories in this century than there was, you know, in the second half of, of the, the 20th century. Why, mm. why does this theory um, prevail? Why, why is it so prolonged in terms of it, it, its life? We have, we must understand that, that what we think happened did actually happen and he didn't escape to South America. And yet for some reason, that theory still remains, doesn't it? Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's always been there since the, the late 1940s, really. Um, partly doubt sown by Stalin, the Soviet dictator, who wanted to uh, suggest that uh, Hitler had somehow escaped the bunker, I think mainly in order to justify his presence and his troops in Eastern Europe. And thinking back to Napoleon, who came back, of course, from the dead, as it were, from imprisonment at any rate. No, people, people knew he was alive, but he came back. Um, and then from there, there are various other conspiracy theories about Hitler having survived. Some of them come from the far right, from admirers of Hitler, who think, how could he possibly have died such an ignominious death, such a great man, such a wonderful, uh, wonderfully clever and intelligent and so on. He must have fooled the Allies and somehow escaped by plane and submarine to Argentina, lived out his days there. Some of them come from another part of the far right, in America in particular, which wants to brand 
American government, the so-called deep state, as the creation of Nazis. And it suits their purpose to say, actually, the American Secret Service had something to do with it, and uh, they fooled everybody. Now, the, the problem with these, apart from the evidence that I already mentioned, the problem with these theories is that, first of all, the kind of circumstantial detail just doesn't stack up. For example, if you look at the submarines, the U-boat that's supposed to have taken him to Argentina, you find actually there are records of these things that it was sunk. Uh, you look at him in Argentina and you think, it's just not plausible. Here's a man who spends his, his life from the end of the First World War on consumed by politics. And if you look at people who, old Nazis, who really did escape to Argentina, like Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the, the main figures in the organizing and carrying out the Holocaust. And there are others, this little colony there. There are recordings of interviews with them, and they spend all their time kind of plotting a comeback. It's kind of, it's kind of fantasy world that they live in. None of them ever mentions Hitler. They know he's dead. They don't uh, give any clue as to the fact that he might have survived and he didn't survive. And uh, he would have been the same. He would have plotted his comeback. It's just not right, to, just not plausible to imagine that he would have stayed there in quiet retirement. So I think these theories have enjoyed a renaissance recently. And that's because of a number of reasons. One is the internet and social media. These are areas where you can express opinions and purvey claims and evade the old gatekeepers like newspaper, magazine editors, radio, TV producers, film producers, book uh, editors, all of those people who used to have some kind of control over what can be said and what can't be said in public. Now the internet go and social media go, just bypass them and you can say anything so long as it's not illegal incitement to violence or um, something like that. So that's enabled them to flourish, I think. And we live in an age of, information overload. It's being thrown at us from all directions, starting with 24-hour news and going on, and it's getting harder to make sense of all this. And a conspiracy theory, which reduces major events in history to the deliberate machinations of a small group of people working in secret for a specific end, that has a kind of appeal that makes it all clear. And then you find conspiracy theories are often peddled by people who feel shut out from mainstream media or disadvantaged in politics in some way, marginalized, and they can bolster their self-esteem by saying, look, everybody's got it wrong. All the historians, all the journalists, everybody, thousands of people, all the researchers, they've all been fooled somehow. We know the truth and they don't. Uh, and there are certain kind of buzzwords you can when you spot them, you know it's a conspiracy theory. And one of them is official, the official version, official knowledge, as if people like me, who as a professional historian, I spent like my life you know, researching and uncovering the past are somehow being uh, somehow puppets of the deep state or the political world, which of course is deeply insulting and just disparages all the efforts of the thousands of people who've devoted themselves to finding out the truth about the past. Uh, so uh, I think there's a number of reasons why conspiracy theories have revived and becoming more widespread. Before, before the age of social media, conspiracy theorists were often sat on their own. I think of them as sort of sad men in dirty raincoats and dingy flats peddling their 
conspiracy theories on their own. Now you can link up very easily over social media with others uh, and convince yourself you're, you're not alone in thinking that, you know, Kennedy was, Jeff Kennedy, president, US president, was killed by conspiracy, not by a lone individual. And that's another feature of some conspiracy theories. Some people find it very difficult to believe in chance in history that a single individual could have caused a major event. It must have been a conspiracy behind the scenes that we just don't know about. Chapter two, perpetuating the myth. Technology has opened our minds to information beyond comprehension, but it's also made space for silos to exist. Pockets of people around the world can meet virtually to discuss their unconventional views of the world in a way that was never possible before. Confirmation bias becomes a sweeping issue as you no longer feel alone in believing all of these false stories and strange conspiracies. You can stumble upon more and more people who believe what you've long suspected. You need only look at the latest raft of Netflix documentaries to see that the platforms being given to conspiracy theories are multiplying. A great example is Behind the Curve, the documentary about flat earthers. Although it clearly sways towards poking fun at the conspiracy, Not everyone sees it that way. For some, simply seeing swathes of believers in a film like that is enough to convince them that there must be something in it. So you have to wonder, as content creators, could we sometimes be to blame for perpetuating these myths? Yes. uh, I mean, again, when major events occur, moving to the present, that it's often difficult to understand them. And of course, uh, they're often disputed to begin with. It takes a very long time for sometimes for the the truth to emerge. And in the meantime, there is this sort of human need for explanations in terms of intention. Things happen because people want them to happen. There's there's a a little book published decades ago by Cambridge historian Herbert Butterfield called The Whig Theory of History, where he kind of points out that, you know, these immense struggles in the uh, 16th, 17th centuries between Catholics and Protestants, both of whom wanted victory and wanted things to, to, to turn out to their advantage. What did it end in? The Enlightenment, which repudiated a large part of both uh, what both parties were saying. Things that, or our Friedrich Engels, a friend and colleague of Karl Marx, uh, used to use a kind of image of a parallelogram of forces where he says, well, something starts a process, but then all kinds of other things kick in. And at the end, something emerges from a process that nobody actually intended. And that's, I think, a principle on which most historians would operate. That things happen in history, not, not always, not necessarily because people intend them to happen. That is disappointing to some people. Returning to the book, we should touch on the, plur- the plural conspiracies. It's not just the supposed disappearance of Hitler from the bunker and its reappearance in Argentina. There are several other theories that surround that period of history, aren't there? I'm thinking particularly of the, the, the origins of the Reichstag fire. Could we just touch on, on that for a moment? Sure. Well, in, uh, on the, the night of the 27th, 28th of February 1933, when Hitler had been appointed as head of a German government, a coalition government in which Nazis were in the minority and conservative, German conservatives in the majority, uh, he hadn't established his dictatorship and he was looking for ways to uh, get dictatorial powers. And at that moment, the Reichstag, the German National Parliament building burned down and 
overnight, the next morning, Hitler obtained from the then president, Hindenburg, a conservative ally of his, a decree suspending civil liberties and allowing the Nazis then to arrest thousands of communists, set up concentration camps, uh, and generally end democracy. And there were other ways in which they were doing that, but that was the first big break in the democratic political structure of the Weimar Republic. Uh, and that decree, that emergency decree, rested on a conspiracy theory peddled by the Nazis that communists were trying to take power by force, as they'd done in Russia not long before, in 1917. And they were, in Germany, a mass movement. Uh, they had 100 seats in the national parliament. They had millions of votes. Uh, and they did have a record of, of attempting coup d'etat. So that led then to the arrest of thousands of communists and, and, and uh, the Nazi dictatorship. And that decree was renewed every year till the end of the Third Reich, every time, on a very frequent basis. It was a kind of fundamental to the whole structure of the dictatorship. But that was a non-starter because although the Nazis put some leading communists on trial, at that time, the courts weren't entirely Nazified in Germany, and so they were acquitted. The only man who was convicted was a young Dutchman, a far leftist, not a member of the Communist Party, not even German, who'd been found on the scene with his shirt off, panting heavily, sweating, and he was clearly had started the fire. But the communists, weren't, he was condemned and executed. Although, in fact, it wasn't a capital crime at the time he committed it. That's a, a major breach of legal principle. But the communists developed an opposite theory. Their argument is, is one that you find very, very frequently in conspiracy theories, the qui bono argument. Who gains from an event? Whoever gains from an event must have started it, according to conspiracy theorists. So the communists said the Nazis gained, so they must have uh, started the fire. And they accused them of a conspiracy to smuggle stormtroopers into the Reichstag building, light the fires everywhere. They piled up all sorts of pseudo evidence. Uh, and that theory has never entirely gone away. Uh, it was disproved in the late 50s, early 60s, again, frequently since. Um, it's clear van der Lubbe was the sole author of the disaster of the fire. But the, the, the so called kind of trumped up uh, evidence that the people who perpetuated this conspiracy theory presented all crumbles when you look closely at it. So the, And they have to explain away, and this is quite common in conspiracy theories, they have to explain away the absence of evidence. So its key witnesses have somehow mysteriously disappeared or been killed or been murdered or documents have disappeared. If only we could find the documents, but the official line uh, has managed to suppress them somehow or burn them. Uh, so uh, it, it's an argument that's very, that's kind of shifts shape and reappears all the time, but there's nothing, nothing in it. Yes, a bit like those missing ballot papers that didn't, you know, that, that Trump didn't didn't get. It's it's kind of the same same argument, different set of circumstances, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. You know, and of course, Trump has infuriated uh, Republican officials who have uh, integrity and who have been insulted by his claim that they that the somehow the election of the president in the United States that led to Joe Biden's victory was rigged. The, it's the safest presidential election in American history, they, they say. And of course, again, 
you know, documents have disappeared, ballot papers have disappeared. No, they haven't, actually. It's all fantasy. Chapter 3. Rewriting History Stories hold power, whether it's tales from the history books or even the stories that you write. The responsibility writers have resting on our shoulders is immense, and the same power is held in conspiracy theories. Care must be taken, because they aren't just a bit of fun. They fundamentally question reality. And because humans are on a never-ending quest for a deeper sense of meaning, it's easy to get others caught up in a fantasy. And that's where President Donald Trump really stepped out of line, beyond his usual campaign of misinformation, when he made claims discrediting the legitimacy of the ballot. There was a real sense from both sides that his position on the issue was unacceptable. When competent and highly skilled civic administrators are pulling off an operation like an election on such a scale, to question the ballot is to question their skills, their honour, their integrity, and perhaps even the very nature of democracy. And in such a position of power, with loyalists ready to believe every word you utter, some lies really are worse than others. Yes, absolutely, yes. And we historians should feel outraged when conspiracy theorists say that we're just officials parroting some kind of deep state uh, version of the past. No, we're not. I mean, if we come across uh, something that's discreditable to past governments, then uh, we will expose it. History is constantly being rewritten and uh, you know, politicians who claim that it's wrong to rewrite history just don't understand what history is about. You go and investigate the evidence that's left by the past. You make up your own mind on the balance of probabilities and you put it out there in your books, in your articles. I think we live very much in an age of impunity whereby there are very few um, people that have the time to call out, not just some guy sat in his basement you know, of his mother's house, right? But official members of state, you know, official elected officials who seem to drift from one baseless claim to another. Now, I'm just going to pause there because when Trump first came onto the, you know, the the platform several years ago, I think a lot of people had sympathy for his desire to bypass the mainstream media and talk directly to his audience, his consumers, for the one of a better phrase, through social media. And I got the sense that the mainstream media have been playing catch up ever since because it's so much coming down the line from him that needs to be fact checked that there almost isn't time before he's moved on to something else. And I don't just want to single him out. But would you agree? Do you think we do live in an age of impunity? Well, I mean, impunity in the sense you don't get punished for telling lies. But there are, fortunately, fact checkers by the hundreds, if not thousands, out there uh, who check everything people say. The Washington Post has been doing this on a huge scale with Trump. It's identified tens of thousands of lies he's told uh, during his political career. And it's starting, of course, with a conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was not American and that there's a conspiracy to cover up. Uh, the fact that he's Kenyan or whatever it might be, total fantasy. And he produced his birth certificate, the long form of his birth certificate showing he was an American citizen, was entitled to become president. Majority of people believed him. He was president uh, for two terms, unlike Trump. But some people believe that and Trump has gone on. And I think this contempt, this open contempt for the truth, which you also find, I'm afraid, in other populist politicians and politicians who uh, kind of have a populist style, like our own prime minister, 
they do not seem to be bothered by the fact that they they tell lies frequently often and and repeatedly and they're found out they're fact checked they're exposed but it doesn't seem to do them any damage and that nowadays that i think that is a that's a relatively new development politicians have always told lies of course they've always been economical with the truth as the late alan clark used to say but you know if they did it openly and brazenly then they were then they were caught out it was uh, I think famously in the Profumo affair, a kind of sex scandal involving the then Minister of War, Jack Profumo, when he was, uh, his career was ended, not so much by the sex scandal as the fact that he was caught out lying to the House of Commons. Yes, it, it seems interesting. We've, we've kind of shifted where the line is now, haven't we? The line yep. of, of acceptability seems mm. to shift. Because if I think about politicians from, say, even as recently as um, as the 90s and, um, and the early 2000s, what would end your career then wouldn't even get into the news now, um, you yeah. know, because we've come um, so far. There's been a cultural shift. And I think a large part of that was the, the coming of postmodernist theory in the 80s and 90s, uh, which cast doubt on the idea of an objective truth. And together with the politics of identity, identity politics, there's my truth, there's your truth, and they're different. I mean, the fact is, of course, there's only one truth, something things are either true or not. And the problem with saying uh, there's no such thing as objective truth, there's only a, a black people's truth, a white people's truth, a feminist truth, a socialist truth, whatever it might be, is that uh, then it exposes you to the question, well, oh, what is what you're saying, what you're saying true? Mm. If there's only if there's no objective truth, then how can I say that that statement is true? It's a kind of paradox that that is inescapable, really. So the, but there is a cultural shift. And when I put this out on Twitter a couple of years ago, I got all sorts of furious res responses. And the best of one was, "So Donald Trump reads Jack Derrida, does he?" Um, but you don't have to do that. Um, you, you know, it's a kind of cultural shift in public discourse and, and particularly in the universities through which of course a very high proportion of politicians pass. It's one of the discussions that we've been having with a series of academics on the subject of slavery as we learn more about an event or, or, a, or a process or a, you know, an, an, in, an industrial scale operation. As we learn more about it, we revisit what we thought we understood and we try and learn from source material that we didn't have access to in 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 the past and I, f I find that rigor and that endeavor is so critical that we do have people who devote their careers to understanding as much as possible about about what happened rather than simply accepting that yes it probably we've probably done enough on on the issue of slavery or on the issue of hitler we can move on you know to something else now it, it, it yeah. it's not that at all uh, and on that professor what, what what's the future for, for you because presumably we're not done with this particular topic are you continuing to research the events of the the third reich or are you moving on to to, to passages new well, I did for a bit, and I wrote a Penguin History of 19th Century Europe, which is a, on a subject I've been teaching for decades, and I've got back to it through a project funded by the Leverhulme Trust at Cambridge on conspiracy theories. But I'm continuing to write about the about Nazi Germany. Apart from anything else, you may be surprised to know that new material is appearing all the time. There was an enormous mass of it, for example, that became accessible to historians with the fall of the Soviet Union, including 
the complete diaries of propaganda minister uh, Josef Goebbels, which had been captured by the Red Army at the end of the war and then squirreled away in the KGB archive, which was opened up in the beginning of the 90s. Uh, the last volume of Goebbels' diaries was published in 2008. And the full diaries of the ideological, uh, ideological spokesperson for the Nazi party, Alfred Rosenberg, uh, were published in 2015. There's new materials coming out all the time and causes us to reinterpret some certain aspects of Nazi Germany. We know vastly more about the Holocaust now through the opening up of archives in Eastern Europe after the fall of communism particularly in the 1990s. So a lot of new, new material is coming out. Well, I, I hope that when this episode comes out, your Twitter feed um, is, 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 is as polite as it can possibly be, because <laughs> I think we may, we may attract some hashtags in that. But okay. Professor Richard Evans, thank you very much for your time. There you go. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. A massive thank you then to Professor Sir Richard J. Evans for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learnt? When you claim a story is true, it gives it a different kind of power in the minds of your audience. If you're basing the events of a story you're writing on real life, take care with what you tell your reader. Be frank with them. Hiding the fact that you're offering an abridged or elaborated version of the truth isn't as harmless as it may seem. If you're thinking of writing conspiracy theorists into your story, it might be tempting to paint them as the lone wolf figure, because in the past, that would often have been the reality. But now it's easy to create communities around conspiracies, so your portrayal of these people should change. Explore the possibilities of an ever-increasing network of individuals gaining momentum, influence and power. What would that be capable of? Conspiracy theorists often believe that whoever gains from an event must have started it. It's often the same in works of fiction. It's very easy to give your characters clear and obvious motives for their actions. But it's far more interesting when you sway away from the obvious and allow the unusual to happen, for motives to be more subtle. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe. The virus is real. And keep writing.